Hi, thanks so much for having me. And it's a real honor to be in the company that I am in uh, tonight for you this afternoon. For me, it's such a precarious and scary time. And um, that will be true whoever wins. Um, and one thing that I have found that alleviates um, my fear and generates uh, hopefulness is just being in the company of people that I admire and uh, whom I find uh, to be wise. And that was certainly the case tonight. So I was, this felt like uh, on the one hand, the absolute worst moment to do this, um, but in fact, the absolute best moment. Um, so I'm gonna begin by telling a story. Uh, in 1942, a 28-year-old Catholic in the Polish underground, whose name was Jan Karski, and I would suggest you guys look him up on uh, YouTube. You can hear him tell this story that I'm about to tell you, and coming from his mouth, it's, it's entirely different, of course. Um, Jan Karski embarked on a mission to travel from Nazi-occupied Poland to London, and ultimately to America, to inform world leaders of what the Germans were perpetrating with the hope of inspiring a response. And in preparation for his journey, he smuggled himself into the Warsaw Ghetto, as well as a, an extermination camp, accumulating information and testimonies that he was gonna bring with him to the West. After surviving um, an incredibly perilous journey, Karski arrived in Washington, DC in June of 1943. And there he met with Supreme Court Justice Felix Frankfurter, who is regarded as one of the great legal minds and more broadly, just one of the great minds um, of American history and who was himself a Jew. Um, after hearing Karski's accounts of the clearing of the Warsaw Ghetto and the exterminations and the concentration camps, and after peppering him with a series of increasingly specific questions like, what is the height of the wall that separates the Warsaw Ghetto from the rest of the city? Frankfurter paced the room in silence and then took his seat and said, Mr. Karski, a man like me, talking to a man like you, I have to be totally frank. And I have to tell you that I'm unable to believe uh, what you've just said. And when Karski's colleague who was with him in the room pleaded with Frankfurter to accept Karski's account, when he said, why, why would this man have put himself in such grave personal danger? Why would he have made this incredible journey only to lie to you? Frankfurter responded, I didn't say that this young man is lying. I said that I am unable to believe him. My mind, my heart, they're made in such a way that I cannot accept it. So Frankfurter didn't question the truthfulness of Karski's story. He didn't dispute that the Germans were systematically murdering the Jews of Europe, including his own relatives. And he didn't respond that while he was persuaded and horrified, there was nothing he could do. Rather, he admitted not only his inability to believe the truth, but his awareness of that inability. Our minds and hearts are well built to perform certain tasks and poorly designed for others. We are good for example, at calculating the path of a hurricane, and we seem to be bad at deciding to get out of its way. So-called climate change deniers reject the conclusion that 97% of climate scientists have reached that the planet is warming because of human activities. But what about the rest of us? And I assume that everybody I'm speaking to now falls into this group. What about those of us who say that we accept 
the reality of human-caused climate change. We may not think that the scientists are lying, but are we able to believe what they tell us? Such a belief would surely awaken us to the urgent ethical imperative attached to it, shake our collective conscience and render us willing to make small sacrifices in the present to avoid cataclysmic ones in the future. Denial of science, the kind that Naomi spoke about earlier, was the problem and it is not the problem right now. 91% uh, of Americans accept the basic science of climate change. Twice as many Americans believe in the existence of Bigfoot as deny the existence of climate change. 70% have said that they wanted the United States to remain in the Paris Climate Accords, and that includes a majority of Republicans. This is not nearly as divisive an issue as it is framed as being. Knowing, while it was at one point the problem, knowing is no longer the problem. The problem is our emotional response to what we know, our inability to fully believe it. And this, of course, begs the question, what would be evidence of belief. I think a good place to begin would be making personal choices that reflect what we know. We know, and this is not controversial, and this is not ambiguous, and this is certainly not an opinion of mine. We know that climate change cannot be solved without systemic legislated change. We also know that it can't be solved without individual change. There are four activities that we perform in our daily lives, um, or rather individual activities uh, that are considered high impact by climate scientists that matter significantly more than all others. These are flying, driving, having children, and eating meat. Um, three of those are a little bit different than the fourth one. More than half of the flights taken in the world are for either business or for what are called non-leisure personal purposes, like to visit a sick relative. So we do need to fly less. COVID has obviously taught us that we can fly less while still being perfectly happy and perfectly productive, but it's not as easy as just saying tomorrow we all need to stop flying. 85% um, of people who drive in the United States drive to work. And most of our cities were designed to require automobiles. I assume most people watching this are not in the process right now of uh, deciding whether or not to have a child. Certainly not right now or you wouldn't be watching this. Um, eating is different. It is a daily choice. For most people, it's a three times a day choice. And for most people, certainly most people watching this, it's an unconstrained choice. We eat what we eat because it's what we choose to eat. Nobody's forcing us to. It's also different because among those uh, high impact activities I just mentioned, it's the only one that immediately addresses methane and nitrous oxide, which are two of the most powerful greenhouse gases, 86 and 310 times as powerful as carbon respectively. According to the United Nations, not according to PETA, um, but according to the United Nations, animal agriculture is one of the top two or three causes of every significant environmental problem on the planet locally and globally. Air pollution, water pollution, deforestation, loss of biodiversity, and greenhouse gas emissions. It's not a coincidence that Al Gore and Greta Thunberg are both vegans. Um, it's also not a coincidence that on American college campuses right now, there are more vegetarians than Catholics. 
Um, the IPCC, which has become the kind of gold standard for climate science, said in its most recent report, even if we do everything else that we're talking about or aspiring to do in terms of um, reducing our carbon footprints and fossil fuel um, um, reductions, we can't save the planet without dramatically reducing our consumption of animal products. We even know how much we have to reduce our consumption. Um, according to the most comprehensive analysis of the relationship between animal agriculture and the environment, and this was published almost exactly a year ago, um, while, and the scientists studied food systems all over the planet and found that there are indeed places where people are just entirely dependent on animal agriculture. They don't have access to other kinds of nutrition and they don't have access to other kinds of agriculture. Such people could afford to eat a little bit more meat and dairy, but citizens of the Europe, U UK and the United States need to eat about 90% less meat and about 60% less dairy in order to avoid what the scientists called irreversible climate collapse. So we know this. Again, it's not controversial, it's not ambiguous and it's nobody's opinion. Um, but it's easy to know something in one's mind and not always believe it when planning a vacation or ordering food at a restaurant or supermarket, um, despite having written a book on this subject and made certain loose vows to myself and certain loose vows very publicly as well. I still haven't done all that good a job of changing my life in response to what I know. I find it unbelievably tragically and really inexplicably easy to forget what it is that I care about, to forget who it is that I describe myself as being, again, both to myself and to others. I say I'm going to fly less, I say I'm going to drive less, and I don't. It amounts to very, very little. Um, I had quite a moving experience. Um, this was one of the last readings I did before COVID. I was in Brussels, and at the end of the reading, there was a book signing and right around the middle of the signing line was a young couple. And they came up to me and opened the book to what's usually a blank page, um, but it was filled with their handwriting. And I asked them what it was. And they said, we're gonna get married in a couple of months. And we decided tonight, when we were thinking about the things that you were saying, that we need to have a plan because if we don't have a plan for our shared life together, our future life will resemble, will resemble our, our present and past lives. We will do the things that we've done because that's just what people do. Um, whatever momentary vows one makes, it's very difficult to change in a sustainable way. So their plan, which they had written down, was two children maximum, um, eat vegetarian except when served meat at a friend's house, eat vegan two days a week, um, only car sharing and no more than a thousand miles a year. And then instead of just having me sign it, there was a line and underneath it said witness. And they wanted me to sign that. And I thought it was really charming. It was interesting how they navigated, you know, what is asked of them by the planet and what is possible for them in their own lives. The details like not eating meat unless it's served at a uh, friend's house at a dinner party. Um, and I just thought it was kind of, it was kind of sweet. And then as I walked away back to my hotel, I started to feel really low and sort of depressed and a little bit ashamed. And I couldn't locate the source of the feeling for a bit. And then I could. Um, I was the guy who had written the book. I was the guy who was on stage giving the reading. I was the guy signing at the end. And yet I didn't have a plan. There are a lot of things I said that felt nice to say and probably sounded nice to hear, but they weren't true or they were at least too vague to be meaningful. Things like I'm going to fly less. 
So I sat down and I wrote a plan in my hotel room that night. Um, I decided that I wouldn't fly um, for any vacations in 2020. I didn't realize how easy that was going to be. Um, that I would limit my taxi rides to five a week, which might sound like not very much to you, but to me in Brooklyn, that was an awful lot. Um, I was going to devote a day of the week to um, two environmental organizations that I believe in and support um, and not eat any animal products before dinner and then eat as a vegetarian for dinner. If you take nothing away from this talk, I would love for you to take this away. Make a plan. It just changes your life or changed my life. I suspect it will change your life. It forces you not only to, to really quantify your beliefs, which are easy again to say, but sometimes hard to really put your finger on and especially hard to actually live by. Quantify your beliefs, quantify your ambitions, give them numbers, days of the week. Um, have witnesses, show it to other people, pin it to your refrigerator, email it to friends, maybe put it on your bedside table. Um, th those, are, those are very helpful um, in, in terms of um, sustaining change, but maybe even most importantly, when you have a plan, you're no longer reliant on your thoughts and feelings and belief every time you have to make a decision. Um, we can um, move away from our emotions in favor of moving toward the kinds of actions that reflect our values. An analogy I often think of is shoplifting. Um, when I go to a store and I see something that I want, I don't have to have a memory of the social contract. I don't have to have a welling of empathy for the shopkeeper and thinking about what it would mean to take money from his or her pocket and effectively put it in mind. I just don't have an internal debate at all. I don't give it any thought because I'm somebody who doesn't steal. That was a decision that I made um, perhaps not consciously, but I made it a long time ago and it's stuck. Um, we need to reshape ourselves into people who just don't steal from the planet and people who just don't steal from the future. So if you are left having to remember your care for the environment when it comes time to plan a summer vacation, if you are like me, it's going to be very, very hard to do the right thing. And I mean, right by your own standards. If instead you have a concrete plan, I am not going to fly on vacations this year, my guess is it will be quite a bit easier. A year before Karski journeyed from Poland to inform Frankfurter in the West uh, that the Jews were being slaughtered, my grandmother fled her Polish village to save her life. Uh, she left behind four grandparents, her mother, two siblings, uh, a dozen cousins, and all of her friends. She was 20 years old and she knew only what everybody else knew that the Nazis were pushing east into Soviet-occupied Poland and were only days away. Asked why she left, even though everybody else stayed, she would say, um, I felt I had to do something. My great-great-grandmother, who would be shot at the edge of a mass grave while holding her stepdaughter, watched my grandmother pack her things. They didn't speak, and that silence was their final exchange. Knowing no less, than her daughter. She didn't feel that she had to do something. Her knowledge was only knowledge. My grandmother's younger sister, who would be shot while trying to trade a trinket for something to eat, followed my grandmother out of the house that day. She took off her only pair of shoes and gave them to my grandmother. You are so lucky to be leaving, she told my grandmother. 
And I have been told that story many, many times. It's a kind of seminal foundational story in my family. But as a child, I always heard it as you're so lucky believing. And maybe it is just luck. If a few factors had been different around the time that my grandmother left, if she had been ill or if she'd just fallen in love with somebody, maybe she wouldn't have been lucky to be leaving. Those who stayed weren't any less brave, weren't any less intelligent or resourceful or afraid of dying. They just didn't believe that what was coming would be so different from what had already come many times before. Belief can't be willed into being and you can't force somebody to believe, not even with better and louder and more virtuous arguments and not even with irrefutable evidence. I sometimes daydream about going from house to house in my grandmother's village and grabbing the faces of all of those people who chose to stay and screaming, you have to do something. And I have this daydream in a house that I know consumes multiples of my fair share of energy and that I know is representative of the kind of voracious lifestyle that I know is destroying our planet, the kind of opposite of the American dream that we heard about earlier. I am capable of imagining one of my descendants daydreaming about grabbing my face and screaming, you have to do something. But I have an extremely difficult time summoning the belief that would move me to do what needs to be done. The other morning on the drive to school, my 10 year old uh, looked up from the book that he was reading and he said, we're so lucky to be living. One piece of knowledge that I don't have is how to square my own gratitude for life with behavior that very often suggests an indifference to it. But this is my struggle. And in this moment of climate crisis, it's our struggle. Thank you very much.